0: There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't
1: hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, and welcome to Control with Chelsea Wilson, the podcast where we speak to game changers and change makers in the music and creative industries. In this episode, I'm speaking to Associate Director of Wem Adelaide Festival, Annette Tripodi. A passionate curator, arts and marketing manager, Annette previously managed the Australian Performing Arts Market and has held key roles at major events, including Festival Melbourne, Come Out and Adelaide Fringe. Chatting to us from the festival office, the connection is a little noisy, but we have a great chat about festival delivery during the pandemic, her thoughts on inclusive programming, sustainability, and much more. This is Annette Tripodi in Control. Annette, welcome to the Control Podcast. Thank you so
0: much. It's really good to be here. Congrats on the podcast as well.
1: Thank you, and congrats to you on delivering another Womadelaide. How are you feeling in this post-festival moment? Uh, The usual
0: kind of stunned, relieved, tired, happy. It's a very peculiar feeling, you know, when you work on something, as so many people know, you work on something for a long, long time and then it's kind of all over within four days. Particularly this edition, which was our 30th anniversary edition. Incredible. And all the fraught lead up to any major event um, in Australia in the last couple of years. The fact that it was just on was like a massive, massive relief. And when Friday night of the festival was actually underway, you know, it was like, my God, is this real? <laughs> and when it finished, it just felt like a, an absolute dream in fact it went it went so well it was beyond our wildest dreams you know we had really good crowds great performances beautiful weather and and everything just ran so smoothly and you know we couldn't have asked for a better event but it does mean that because of how difficult the lead-up was i think this year i and all of my colleagues were like deeply exhausted more than usual Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that was just like uh, the peculiar stresses of the last year or two had had its effect more than we realised. And so when it was finished, you know, we were just like, wow, and then everyone just went crash.
1: (laughs) Festival life. It is a really different way of working, I think, compared to other kind of artistic practices where you spend time making something. You know, you're in the studio making an album and there's a physical thing at the end or you're making a visual art piece. When you're sort of making a festival, I often think about the sand mandalas that the Tibetan monks make. You know, you've spent this entire year or longer because... Sometimes with programming, you have to program some of these acts three, four, five years in advance, whatever that looks like, and you've intricately built this lineup and all these moving pieces and people from all around the world coming for this one event, and then it's over. (laughs) And you
0: sweep it away into the back
1: of your brain. (laughs) And it's just done. Do you have any post-festival rituals? Is there something that you do after every Womadelaide Adelaide? Do you celebrate the wins or are you just straight away planning the next one?
0: Uh, there are certain things that we do. I mean, obviously there are things that have to happen that are um, kind of boring but very important admin, such as paying people.
1: <laughs> paying everyone. <laughs> uh,
0: and submitting our um, app for song lists and, you know, just all that kind of, um, I call it administ trivia, which is um, very Um, important but you know it's the last thing you feel like doing and that and that happens it's kind of ongoing even to now um, a few weeks later but it's obviously very important in the week the days following the festival. Um, I I always take a day off as quickly as possible so that I can just not be at work. I love to do to be very physical even though I've just run around Botanic Park and probably clocked up no kidding, somewhere in the 60 to 100 kilometres of walking. Wow. Your body's tired, but it actually feels good to go for a bike ride or go for a swim, have a massage. That's always number one on my list. Eat really good food. And then for our office, we kind of lock in a festival debrief and a wrap lunch as quickly as we can post-festival so that everything's fresh. And we can talk about the highs and the lows, the things that worked, the things that perhaps didn't, note it down for the future and work on, you know, work towards changing those things if we need to, and also um, celebrating. So we had a beautiful lunch at an Italian restaurant where we were the only clientele. Um, Perfect. 30 to 40 of us and, you know, it's one of those days that starts at midday and it may end up Fish or I may end up fishing at two o'clock in the morning, but that is a really joyous thing because we don't see each other like the key festival team. We don't really hang out and have fun at the festival in the way that um, maybe people imagine. I am definitely out and about seeing as much as I can of the performances, um, but obviously, production and technical and site teams, you know, they're really they're at the crunchy end of their work um, making sure things are actually running and then the worst thing that they have to do which is not part of my role is the bump out like pack up yes pack up the park it's like cleaning up after a party (laughs) who wants to do that when you're so exhausted (laughs) but it's an essential part of the post-festival you know period but uh we are absolutely thrilled that we could return to botanic park celebrate 30 years and have seven stages and a really really amazing lineup that was 95 australian for the first time ever
1: i feel good yeah that's great and a huge congratulations what an amazing milestone and contribution to the australian arts and music landscape. Can you tell us a little bit about your approach to programming the festival? How do you put together the lineup? Do you think about balancing genres? Are you booking headline acts first? How do you kind of shape the narrative of music across those seven stages?
0: It's a good question and it's not exactly the same every year. For example, now it's only a few weeks after the 2022 festival and I have already made half a dozen invitations proper invitations for 2023 and as you mentioned earlier you know there are artists that you have been talking to for some time working towards bringing to Australia in in the case of the here and now you know we've got a massive backlog if I could use that word of like really amazing artists that we've not been able to bring this year or last year and so there are some that you know I feel very confident an invitation will be made. They've got the dates on hold already because we've deferred them a few times. Um, But normally I suppose um, what we're looking for in any program is the best possible, highest quality, balanced mix of music from all around the world, be it contemporary or traditional. And we want it to be a lineup that is different from other festivals in Australia. Uh, we want to be a completely different lineup every year, so you know whoever we've had 12 months ago will not be on the bill the next year. You know if we do them again, there'll be a bit of a pause. Um, so I've got this amazing wish list, which are people that I've seen live or people that I love on, you know, love their albums, um, who I just feel would be amazing at the festival, and they might not be a known artist. They could be, a, you know, a, a typically unknown to Australian audiences, artists, that WOMAD will be the person, the, the, the organisation presenting um, for the very first time. In lots of ways, we love to do a, an Australian debut. Um, that's not always possible. If we can do a WOMADelaide debut, that's great. If we can do an exclusive, that's wonderful, but, you know, the money doesn't always make sense in doing that. Um, Mm. A lot of people ask if I kind of tick a box with countries and that's not the case, but it's fair to say that, you know, I wouldn't have a a program that's got 15 groups from Africa um, and, you know, nothing from Europe. You know, it just wouldn't make sense. We want to deliver a really broad range of sounds from as many different cultures as we can and... As I'm sure you know, as someone who programs things, who you want is not necessarily who you'll end up with. Um, So it's very, it's very organic. It's a very moving feast. And it may be that the person we want is not available or they're just really out of financial range. So the wish list is very big and very, uh, you know, it moves a lot from year to year. And then we work with a lot of great promoters in Australia who regularly tour fantastic artists and so we might um, invite somebody that they're touring nationally to just do their Adelaide show at Worm Adelaide and a lot of the time those artists were not going to do Adelaide. And so, you know, it's really great if we can add to somebody's national tour by um, having a a show in South Australia that wouldn't otherwise have happened. Um, We do have a kind of expressions of interest platform through our website that's open from roughly May to July, which I do listen to and check through and read in detail. And that can be um, a wonderful way of learning about somebody that you've never heard of that is actually a perfect fit. Um, Mm. Probably that applies more to Australian artists than internationals. So in a a normal life, I would be going out to a lot of live music (laughs) as well and finding things that way through other festivals, through um, even big sound, you know, music conference festival type events where you have the opportunity to see a lot of stuff in a short space of time. Uh, obviously I've been working on the festival one way or another for a long time since late 1997 so I've got a really good gut feeling mm. and and sense of what will work really well for the festival and sometimes it's not necessarily something I personally love but it's something that fits fits really well in the mix and I know that the audience will really embrace so yeah it's a Beautiful musical jigsaw puzzle, <laughs> and the pieces of slowly will slowly come together between now and probably early October.
1: How has the pandemic shaped your practice as a programmer?
0: Well, for one thing, I've had to kind of create parallel festival programs. Um, so by that I mean because there's been so much uncertainty about whether a festival can actually proceed and if it can, to what capacity and uh, in what sort of format, you know, that's led us to work with different scenarios that may pan out. And so instead of just programming, i say just programming, a normal festival with, you know, 45 internationals and 25 Aussies and street theatre and Planet Talks and all those things across seven stages, suddenly we're saying, well, there's that version But then there's a version which is what if we can only do all Australians? And so there's a kind of parallel secondary program that you might have to put into play. In 2021, we did not get permission from SA Health to do our full festival in Botanic Park in in any format. And so what we did was within probably less than a month kind of reinvent the event uh, into a series of four nights, the same dates, but in a different venue where we could put 6,000 seats. Wow. And we had 11 Australian bands, that was it, over the four nights doing, you know, a kind of concert series. That was a massive change and obviously a horrible exercise to have to go through where Mm -mm. I had a program ready to roll and all these people confirmed but not yet announced and then I had to go back to all of these artists and, you know, it's a very familiar story in Australia in the last couple of years and say, I'm really sorry, but we, we're not able to go ahead in that format. And so we we held on to the artists who were, I guess, although only, you know, a sixth of the size of a normal festival in terms of the number of artists, uh, they were a great representation of like a mini woman. And we had headliners in Midnight Oil doing a standard kind of classics show, but then they did their Makarata Live project with like 25 First Nations guest singers, which is obviously perfect for us. We had Maisha as like a young up and coming First Nations singer playing with Kae and Tash Sultana. So it was like a triple bill of young, incredibly talented women who would all be totally, you know, the right fit for a fuller festival. Uh, We had Archie Roach who was um, kind of farewelling Adelaide and he'd been at the festival four times. We love him to pieces. And on that same night we had Lior with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra and Sarah Blasco. And it was all of the nights were beautiful but we, you know, we lamented the loss of our festival in Botanic Park mm. like like anybody would. It's so much work that just kind of went down the drain. So many artists that, are, you know, were disappointed by being cancelled effectively. Um, and so we did learn from that that we've got to be prepared for a plan B and plan C, maybe even more. SA Health were very supportive early on about us returning to Botanic Park but they made it really clear that it wouldn't be at the full capacity of twenty five thousand, and that we would have to probably make some major modifications to our site to create more space and follow all
1: kinds of rules. It already feels so spacious. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's such it, a beautiful it, site. That's what I love about coming over for WOMAD. It feels relaxed. You know, I don't enjoy squashy crowds. No, there's plenty of
0: room. It's thirty four hectares and. I think there's some kind of magic in the air at Botanic Park where mm. people enter the venue and if they've, even if they've never been before, they just kind of uh, relax and take a sigh and suddenly it's just, you know, smiles all around. But for the 2022 festival, you know, we were thinking we wouldn't be able to have any, any internationals and we made very few invitations late last year to about um, half a dozen groups, and we were, you know, hedging our bets, thinking it's quite possible that they might not be able to come. And so we had some backups in place for that. And then in January, um, because of course the scenario of a lead singer of a major band getting COVID at the time of the festival and not being able to perform was a you know possible reality. I had um, another probably 10 groups on standby for six weeks at least before the festival who were just, we had all their photos and tech specs and music and everything ready to go in case we needed to quickly slot them in and then I'd also spoken to uh, some amazing artists who are already in the festival but only doing one performance to say, if we need to um, upgrade you to two shows, you know, are you available mm. or can you do that? So it's kind of like the pandemic has meant backups for your backups for your backups.
1: <laughs> Which is a completely different way of working and everything's taking three, four, five times longer. Exactly. And that applied not
0: only to the artists but to our staff, to our crew, to our stage MCs, everybody. So Kind of doing, you know, more than twice the work. Mm-hmm. Really, what you don't need, which is why we're all extra tired after this one.
1: <laughs> yeah, the anxiety and uncertainty about how it's going to land. Putting together that concert program for six thousand seated people, you know, is is such a triumph and incredible that it was able to go ahead. But it's a completely different event to be programming. <laughs> it's, you know, a festival like where Madelaide and people wander that's part of the beautiful that's discovery right. of being able to move from stage to stage is very different from buying a, a static ticket to sit in the one place and experience a, a show in entirety rather than that sort of smorgasbord feel of a festival. So it's completely different completely different so yeah huge hats off to you and the team for you know managing to I mean pivots that keyword that everyone's been using the last couple of years right <laughs> we've all had to come up with other kind of alternative models for what we do but it's just great that the festival managed to go ahead and still support artists and speaking of local artists and going through that EOI list which I'm sure is huge I've got a lot of musicians that do listen to this podcast which is why I wanted to ask you this question how do you know when an artist is ready for a festival
0: well it's not always easy a lot of it is a gut instinct thing uh, that that definitely comes from experience i would say that when people are doing an eoi if they've never really performed at all you know they're, they're probably going to be very low down on the list and so we ask questions in the in the eoi about you know who you are where you're from um loose genre we um, give them the opportunity to provide a blurb and any links to music um, videos, websites, uh, etc. And then we ask you know have you performed here before? have you done major festivals before? all kinds of questions that um, give me a good insight into what okay I guess what sort of level um, an artist might be at. And that's not to say that a newish artist, can't perform at the festival. That's definitely not the case. But if the support material is really poor, you know, it's not going to make a very good impression on any programmer. And so I would always say to any artist that your main aim should be to be as good as you can possibly be in your performances live and in your recordings and Mm -hmm. don't put up things online that are inferior, you know, like... If you've had something filmed properly, even if it is a low-key event, it's going to be a much better impression than somebody sending me phone footage that has awful sound and, you know, it just doesn't reflect well on the artist. I think what we really want is quality and obviously when you've had a lot of performance experience, you're you're hopefully going to be a great quality performer but there are young emerging artists who just have you know it they have that talent and I can usually see where something might be quite raw but it's excellent as well so that's a really tricky question to answer one thing I'll mention in, in that context actually is in having this last program of 95% Aussies, the quality was amazing across the board. The, the performances were outstanding and some of the performances mm. um, came through our relatively new Worm Adelaide NSS Academy. We've been working with Northern Sound System in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. They in turn selected about a dozen Emerging young First Nations and multicultural artists to undergo music development training, really. So, learning how to do press releases and publicity, refining live shows, songwriting intensives, workshops for stage performance, you know, all of the things that kind of contribute to an artist being able to perform, you know, and create and release music. It's really fantastic, mm-hmm. and then they did a showcase evening where great. I got to see them all perform live uh, for two or three songs. And from that, we selected three artists: uh, Soquel, Elsie Wameo, uh, who was really on the rise independently of the academy, uh, and also Sons of Serpent, so all Adelaide-based artists and. With Sappel, for example, I don't think he'd mind me um, saying this publicly. You know, the, the show was just so mad and crazy, good and dynamic. It just needed some tweaks and a little bit of work to make it even better. And he was open to having that discussion with me. And then when he performed at WOMAD, it was it was honestly next level. They'd been rehearsing. And they had taken some advice from the academy team and from me to just like reshape things a little bit and make sure that they only had a 45-minute show, that it was just wall-to-wall goodness, you know, like all, mm-hmm. all killer, no filler. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, but he's super new and really young. And, you know, so that, that kind of thing, you can recognise where there's that spark that is going to be it's going to work, you know, and then you can see where somebody really needs more time to develop their confidence or what they do.
1: It's a really exciting and wonderful part of being a programmer also, I think, is being able to have that relationship with emerging artists and be part of their development. And I think it's part of the role that a lot of people maybe don't really understand or know about but that kind of relationship building and giving that sort of feedback is so important just changing track a little bit I wanted to talk about how WOMAD connects with Adelaide and WOMAD the festivals are a brand that's in the UK around the world Chile New Zealand But what is that connection with Adelaide between the festival and the town and what do you think the difference would be if you lifted the festival up and moved it somewhere else? What is it about Adelaide specifically that makes it work?
0: Well, we do have the benefit of being um, a very laid-back, accessible um, city. You know, we're a a small CBD. Um, You can get to the beach, to the hills, to the airport. 20 minutes. (laughs) I love that. It is is a massive asset. Um, So to be able to have a venue like Botanic Park, which is a heritage-listed botanical garden, you know, to to have that in the middle of the city and as our venue that people can so easily come and go from, uh, whether they're flying in or whether they are resident in Adelaide, is a massive bonus For us you know it's a I think our venue is quite crucial to the ambient physical mental heart experience that people have at the festival and so if we were to move to Melbourne or Sydney for example which which was definitely a a hot thing about a decade or more ago where people would approach us and say how about it like Do you want to relocate the event? I think we've really found our our forever home and our footing here now. But um, we would definitely want to have a similarly central, beautiful, special venue in which to build the festival, and that's not as easy uh, in other places. And in the way that the festival was born, Worm Adelaide was born out of the Adelaide Festival And so when it began 30 years ago in 1992, it was intended to be a one-off festival within Adelaide Festival. And what that meant for the birth of the festival is that it was coming from a place of it's not a rock and roll, just wax and bands on stages. It was coming from the sort of aesthetic and production, high production values of a theatrical event which has really played into how the programming has remained quite different from other festivals around Australia. So it's very important to us that the the crew, the staff, the venue, um, the artists and everything is, um, I guess, keeping up with that ethos of being an international level event in the middle of a city that is open to all ages, you know, children to grandparents. Um, And and through our programming, we constantly connect with Adelaide-based major cultural institutions, with the SA Museum, Nexus Arts this year for the first time, the Academy Program that I mentioned earlier. All of the Kids Zone are all Adelaide-based creators and artists. Um, In the past, we've worked with Carclue Youth Arts and with the Art Gallery, and it's very easy to create those relationships in a city like Adelaide, where people are very accessible to have those conversations. And I think it is something that would take a lot more time to do in, say, Sydney, where Establishing those connections and networks might be a little more difficult because people have their own interests at heart Mm -hmm. not wanting to work together. That's a really interesting question. And having worked on or attended a lot of the other WOMAD festivals, they all have a connection to place through the programming but also through their venues.
1: Adelaide in March is a really exciting time with the Arts Festival, Fringe Festival, yeah. WOMAD, and it just seems like an endless myriad of events all happening across the city simultaneously. It's really exciting as a punter. But how do you think that model works from your perspective in ensuring that WOMAD Adelaide doesn't get lost in the noise?
0: Uh, in fact, it's been a really great thing
1: that um, all the
0: festivals, Adelaide Fringe, Adelaide Festival and WOMAD, were all biennial until certain certain times, and uh, when everything since everything's been annual, we it's it's really complementary. I mean it means that from a tourism point of view, anyone anyone who's visiting the city can actually mm-hmm. go to all three events and see a pretty vastly different array of programming and shows in a relatively short space of time. Um, You know, we're still kind of a part of Adelaide Festival in a way. Although we operate completely independently, they promote us through their festival program. And sometimes we have conversations about artists that we can't present for some reason that might work better for them or vice versa. Um, Adelaide Fringe is not a curated event, so, you know, being an open access event, there'll be all kinds of things on across their program from cabaret and circus to to comedy and music and whatever. But I think um, the term Mad March, which I absolutely (laughs) despise, uh, we really don't like that term. It is a really wonderful time, um, February, March, to be in this city and I think it is a favourable thing that we went annual in 2003, I think the Fringe in two thousand and seven, and I think Adelaide Festival in twenty twelve, and it makes it a hell of a lot easier for all of us to program, because I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when we were biennial, we'd finish, mm. we'd wrap up, and then it would be a really long two years and until the next event, and so. There are kind of missed opportunities um, when there's such a big gap in between where an artist might be just, you know, so hot and they're just perfect for you but you miss the moment because you're too far away. And so the cycle of programming and planning has become a lot easier for all of the events, I think, in being annual. And there's an organisation here called Festivals Satellite, which is um, essentially a gathering of all the festivals that happen in SA. We work together to lobby and work with government and council to try and get things in place that benefit all of the festivals. So it's pretty
1: harmonious. That's brilliant. It's a really good example of community. Yeah,
0: it is very, like I said earlier, it's very easy to connect with community here and I think that does apply with the sort of partnerships that go on between all the festivals.
1: I'd love to hear your thoughts about sustainability and the music industry. I know Green Music Australia has been quite vocal and doing some great work in the space and there's a lot of festivals around the country that are looking at different models of how to be more environmentally conscious. Given the location of WOMAD in Botanic Park, it feels like you're quite already environmentally minded. But what role does the festival play in looking after the surrounds and taking that into consideration?
0: Well, I'll start by saying that it was 2001 that we really began our sustainability programs and at that point, you know, we got rid of all plastic serving materials out in in the park at all the stalls and also backstage. We had compostable everything and at the end of the festival, once that was all sorted, like the compost went back into Botanic Gardens, you know, it was a very, very good starting point some 20 years ago Mm. and over the years we've refined and added and tested and trialled a whole bunch of things Um, biodiesel for generators all the different sorts of cup systems where nothing is disposable and the park itself you know we have a, a really extensive contract with them that is very very detailed In terms of the the use of the park and the things that we're allowed to do and not allowed to do we do a kind of it's it's like a house inspection there's a pre-event inspection with all of the garden relevant stuff and there's also a post event inspection and so where there's damage in any way and it is if there is any it's always accidental it could be somebody who's delivering some staging who backs into a tree we have to do the reparations for that. We have a responsibility to give the park back in as close to the condition that we received it in as possible. And, you know, some of the uh, the trees on site, that they each have, every tree in Botanic Park has a value, a monetary value, which is based on how old it is, how big it is, Uh, where the seeds came from. It could be native to Botanic Park. It could be a tiny tree but a very precious tree. It could be a really big tree but not so precious. So there's all these things about turf care and trenching and things that are nuts and bolts stuff for the park. But for the festival itself, we're always working to be as environmentally responsible as possible and uh, it's it it takes a lot of work like we have somebody who is our sustainability officer who works part-time but who's very dedicated to all of those sorts of things how can we power things better how can we reduce the waste but essentially it's been an ongoing thing for more than 20 years for us and a key thing is a partnership that we've had with Greening Australia for a long time, where a portion of each ticket that's sold goes to them, and we have created a number of Wamadelaide forests on Kangaroo Island, and there's a new one uh, now in on the Florio Peninsula, which are providing uh, essentially, you know, reforesting terrible bits of land to bring them back to a more natural state it's intense it can always be better but we're always looking to work towards that
1: i'd love to go back a little bit in your career um i know you worked for penguin books in the uk and for pr firm michael's warren what was this time in your life like
0: wow uh it feels like a really long time ago i feel very old at this point (laughs) um uh, i did a uh Bachelor of Arts in Communications I uh, finished that in the late 80s and yes I worked in public relations and publicity for corporate companies really for the first few years of my working life which was um, nothing like what I would ever like to be doing now I'll tell you. Um, it was in Adelaide and Sydney and in um, a time in the late 1980s where waste and expense was just rife you know i just look back on that and think my god it was just so such a crazy time to be living in Sydney and mm. in the world at that time and so when I left Sydney and I moved to London for three years um, I was just doing temp jobs and I found myself working for Reuters the international news agency and Penguin Books and things that were kind of up my alley even though the work itself was quite menial, you know, I was just being paid by the hour to be like an executive assistant type thing and I'd save up a heap of money and then I'd just go and travel somewhere and come back just did that over and over for three years. But I did find that I was really leaning towards writing. I had wanted an alternative career was in journalism and so I was kind of working in companies as a temp where what they did really interested me. And living in London gives you such access to amazing uh, music and art and, and Europe as well. And so I found myself going to festivals a lot. And when I came back to Adelaide, I had this, you know, vision, call it what you will. I will work for Adelaide Fringe. That's what I want to do. And I'll work in publicity. And a job came up. I went for the interview. I got it. It was a short contract like most arts jobs and I loved it so much. I loved it. I worked really really hard pre-mobile phones, pre-email. I adored it and I thought this is it. Change of life and I stayed in the media and publicity and marketing area in festivals and the arts until 97 when I worked on um, the festival that was called Come Out. It's now called Dream Big as a program manager and I kind of learned that that was working with the artistic director to create the program and then it was another light bulb moment of I don't want to do media anymore, I want to make the festival. And when I started <laughs> here at Lab with Arts Projects Australia, which is the parent company, it's a small private company and I got a four-month contract working on the Australian Performing Arts Market, which was like a conference, conference and festival all in one, pretty big thing and I just thought oh I'll do this and that would yep. be it but I kept hinting <laughs> hey you know if you need me for woman I'll do I'll do anything I'm here I'm very organized very passionate and I've got all this experience it's not exactly you know what you may need but I gradually took on some different roles They changed and evolved and evolved and probably by about 2009 I had a major programming role and now as Associate Director, which is a relatively new title, I am working with our Director but I'm definitely the person who's responsible for creating the program in the main and also overseeing a lot of the logistics with the various teams with marketing, publicity, travel and operations. Production, all of that. So it's a really huge, really amazing job. And at the core of it is getting to choose beautiful music for a beautiful event. And I'm not sick of it at all.
1: <laughs> Absolute dream job, I think. It, it really is. How do you think that background in media and PR supports you in that leadership role now?
0: Oh, it's so useful. I, I do quite a lot of copywriting mm-hmm. um, and editing and proofing of all of the documents and, and media releases and brochures and everything that we do because... Because
1: um, you know about the artists. I know about the artists. Yes, it's, it has to be programming. It's always us writing all yeah. the copy. And we, we do have a copywriter um,
0: yeah. who I send everything to and he writes the first blurb, which I then edit, and um, what you know, what he or she may present me with might be quite quite factual and correct and all of that, but it might be um, missing a little bit of the the vavavum mm. you know <laughs> that's necessary. And if I've seen the band live, then I have an extra understanding of what it is they'll bring to the festival and how you should describe them to an audience who's never heard of them. Yes. So that's a really, really big thing. Um, it's it's invaluable that, that writing communications background that, that I have probably annoys the hell out of our publicity manager <laughs> because I'm, I'm a savage editor, um, but it's... It's really important. It's that so we important. What we do and we work together and we've got a quite an amazing long-term team here, of people who've been here five or 10 or more years. And so we know and trust each other really well, aside from getting on really well, which is great.
1: Inclusion and diversity across programming is something that's naturally, you know, part of where Adelaide. It's just a festival program that is always so exciting because it's such a broad range of music and people from all parts of the world. There's a lot of festivals around the country that you know have been slow to incorporate different genres and there's been a lot of conversations in the industry and in media around calling out festivals to be more diverse and more inclusive. What do you think needs to happen for us to see a more inclusive music industry in Australia?
0: Uh, it's not a simple thing to address um, because I think it does take time to make change and, I mean, there's probably a lot of people out there who think, oh, there's Annette and she's been with WOMAN for forever, you know, give someone else a go for goodness sake and, and that's, that's fair enough. Um, and I will move on at some stage. So where there is a really unfavourable, rusted-on leadership within a venue or a festival, it does make it really hard for change to happen. I wouldn't say that I'm somebody who just always embraces change. I'm not. Um, I like things to feel, feel good and feel comfortable and I don't like conflict and, you know, but things have to change, music changes, the world changes and, and you change with that hopefully. And how you find that platform for new people to come into the scene to make those changes is just an endless enigma of a question. We try and do things like have internships and, you know, new people, young people, um, even the academy that I mentioned before, you know, where we're introducing people into a world where hopefully in a few years' time they will have learned so much and moved up in their understanding of things that they can come in and work with us as well. I think some people are just really blind to what they're programming. You know, there are plenty of festivals who just go for big names with no regard for whether it is a diverse lineup or whether there's, you know, a great number of women in the lineup, and there are a great number of women artists out there for sure. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of people that just it just does not occur to them. It's a really it comes down to the laziness. And I'm not saying that anyone should program by some ticker box, you know, okay, this event is 50% women because people are telling me it has to be. I think as I said about our program, we want to produce the very best mix of artists. And sometimes we try for, you know, outstanding artists that we can't get, which might mean that on paper, a lineup looks like it's got, um, you know, I don't know, like too many Americans or too many men. But behind the scenes, there's a lot that people don't, um, well, don't, people don't know what's been going on to get to that point. Um, it would be really nice if training and workshops could happen um, more openly between festivals and um, grassroots organisations. Um, I do do them. I've done, done quite a few through Zoom in the last couple of years where I really hope that um, doors are being opened for younger people and people from all cultures to get the foot in the door. But I don't know, Chelsea, it's... Um, I feel like I operate very much from the heart, which is not a terribly business-like <laughs> way to be a, a program director. Um, and so I, I'd i be just appalled if somebody said to me, your festival is not diverse enough because it just comes naturally to us. It is what we do, you know. It's, it's really I think a lot of other festivals have started to, change and follow and evolve, you know, Golden Plains and even Blues Fest, you know, they they are inviting artists that perhaps they wouldn't have 10 years ago.
1: Yes, it's slow progress, but I do feel like we are getting somewhere, but I I think you're right. It is a really complicated topic. It's a big issue and something, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, I'm all about the multi-prong attack, you know, I think, true change that needs to happen culturally across the country needs to happen from all angles it needs to be from media it needs to be in the education sector I think Mm. festivals get a lot of you know shade and attack thrown at them because you can visibly see on the poster Mm. a list of names Mm. and it's easy to you know you see those Instagram accounts where they delete all of the the men off the poster and you you only see two women's names there. It's easy to do that for, you know, a poster of a festival. But if you looked at the diversity of artists signed to a record label, it would probably be even worse, you know, but there isn't this petitions attacking major labels about the amount of female artists that they sign or the amount of diversity on rosters because it's just not as transparent as Mm. a festival bill. Um, But it's a great place to start that there's a conversation around festivals and hopefully it expands to more areas of the industry. And I think artists as well have a responsibility and when people, you know, if there's, male musicians who are band leaders who only ever choose to play with other male musicians, well, then as a festival director, well, that's all you've got to choose from. They have all men in their band and it's either I book the band or I don't. So, you know, we also need musicians to think more about why they want to present monocultures on stage and what that's about from the musician community. So I think it's, it's good that we're having these conversations. They weren't happening 20 years ago on this level. So I think it's an exciting time and there is progress, but, yeah, it's quite slow. <laughs>
0: I, I really agree with you that education and media are um, very f- far more wide-reaching than what um, us as a festival organisation yeah. can be and there needs to be massive change there. I will say that we have an amazing number of women on our staff and crew. In fact, all of our stage managers are women. All of our assistant stage managers are women. Um, We have a really powerful um, base of of women who work on and present and produce this festival, which is really awesome. Um, In terms of inclusion and diversity, we're always looking at ways that we can work with uh, local and national organisations to further that relationship we worked with music in exile this year for the first time to deliver three bands to the festival Um, we're working on our reconciliation action plan which is a very long process with an amazing uh, local uh, first nations agency who are literally speaking to all of our sponsors and suppliers and previous first nations artists to see i guess you know where trying to look in the mirror and see where we stand on those fronts and see what we can do better. Um, We're about to do a very similar thing, um, we hope, with accessibility. Uh, We've got a lot of things in place um, for, and I mean that on two different fronts, by um, people who have a disability uh, being able to attend the festival and feel included, and we do have lots of things in place at the moment but we want to do better but also by accessibility I mean making the festival accessible to communities that cannot perhaps afford to come. So we usually um, donate something like 300 to 400 tickets to, you know, refugee, community, Aboriginal organisations. So, you know, you can only do these things with the benefit of time, a bit of money, and somebody who has the will to make to make mm. these things happen. And um, we are not perfect, but we want to do the best we can so that we are making everyone feel welcome at one That's for sure.
1: Annette, thank you so much for joining me on the Control Podcast. It's been so great to chat with you.
0: Thank you so much for having me and um, all the best with the rest of the series.
1: That was Annette Tripodi in Control. For more info, please check the links in the show notes. Please subscribe to Control on your preferred podcast platform. And if you have a moment, please rate and leave a review. It helps others find the podcast. And of course, there's more information and more conversations happening on Control on Instagram and Facebook. This episode was recorded digitally on the lands of the Kulin Nation and I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and all First Nations peoples. Until next time, Chelsea Wilson signing off.